0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts.
1: An unprecedented year in Philadelphia, a city grappling with a crisis.
2: We hear kids and women getting shot. That's really hurtful.
1: And a movement for criminal justice reform. District Attorney Larry Krasner looking for four more years, taking on a man he fired. Former homicide prosecutor Carlos Vega. The city's future is at issue. Tackling gun violence.
0: It's just too many lives, innocent lives,
1: that are being lost. Criminal justice reform. Working with law enforcement.
0: We do need to see everyone being able to put their differences aside and coming together for this.
1: And find out why it matters to you, whether you live inside the city or out. NBC 10 and KYW News Radio present the 2021 Democratic Debate for Philadelphia District Attorney. Welcome to our live broadcast from the NBC 10 studios at the Comcast Technology Center. We are less than two weeks away from the primary election here in Philadelphia. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Jacqueline London. We are pleased to have the Democratic candidates for Philadelphia District Attorney here with us tonight. Incumbent Larry Krasner and former homicide prosecutor Carlos Vega. Joining us to learn where the candidates stand are our three panelists NBC 10 News political reporter Lauren Make, KYW News Radio community affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and KYW News Radio crime and justice reporter Kristen Johansson. Thank you all for being here. As you can see, we're observing social distancing guidelines and following other COVID protocols in our news studio. We begin with an opening statement from each candidate. Based on the results of a coin toss one week ago, District Attorney Krasner will give his statement first. You each have one minute for your opening remarks. DA Krasner.
3: Thank you. Good evening, Philadelphia. We have a real choice to make in the next two weeks about who's going to be our district attorney. I'm running on my record, and let me tell you what that record is. We said we were going to focus on serious crime. My office has an, a nearly 85% conviction rate for shootings, fatal and non-fatal. But we have also kept our promises on reform. We've cut future mass incarceration in half, future mass supervision on parole and probation by two-thirds. We treated kids like kids. We held police accountable in unprecedented ways that lift up the best police officers. And we achieved 20 exonerations of innocent people. I'm going to ask you to compare that to my opponent, to compare that to what he did to Anthony Wright when he was a prosecutor, and knowing that Mr. Wright was innocent after DNA established that, he re-prosecuted him anyway. Words are nice, but actions tell us a lot. Thank you. Mr. Vega.
2: My name is Carlos Vega, and I became a prosecutor to uh, represent those people who has suffered from systemic injustice and violent crime. We don't need to make a choice between reform or safety. We need both. We deserve both. Mr. Krasner, you have blood on your hands. Milan Loncar, a young man walking his dog. Trevon Register, six-year-old boy beaten to death. Samar Jones, seven-year-old boy killed on his porch. Corporal O'Connor, killed in the line of duty. Gladys Corriano, a domestic violence victim shot in front of her house. Dominic Bila, young man shot in the Franklin Mills Mall. These are just a few of the victims that we can directly put on the incompetence of Larry Krasner. Krasner says he doesn't want to go back to the past. But we have we have a murder rate, uh, rate, a murder rate and violence rate that rivals the 1990s. Larry has failed to provide real reform. He's gutted social programs that have helped people. He said he will hold the police accountable.
1: Mr. Virgo, thank you. Your time is up. Turning now to our questions, you will each have one minute, uninterrupted, to answer the question, followed by an open discussion, which lasts for two and a half minutes. Mr. Vega will take the first question. We begin with Lauren Make and a question on gun violence and public safety. Lauren. Thank you, Jacqueline. Gentlemen,
4: the first question, again, goes to Mr. Vega. The city is in the middle of the worst gun violence crisis on record. Shootings and homicides were increasing even before the pandemic. The district attorney is a top law enforcement official in this city. What is the DA's responsibility in solving the gun violence crisis? Mr. Vega, the question first to you.
2: The responsibility is to work with the police, work the community, and prosecute those uh, crimes that there are consequences. We've heard uh, Commissioner Outlaw uh, talk about consequences. They are removing guns at record rates. Yet there are no consequences. The conviction rate has gone down substantially. I'll use the example of of this year alone from January 1st to April 30th. There have been uh, homicides, shootings, gunpoint robberies, assaults, gun possessions. Totaling that the DA has approved those charges and taken them to court, 785. He has discharged, withdrawn, and verdicts of not guilty of 530. So his conviction rate is 32%. So we talk about the violence in the city is that the DA's office has dropped the ball. Their attorneys are not doing their job and they are not working with the police in solving those crimes. They need to bring the police, the community together to start working out solutions. I will bring a focused deterrence program to solve those issues and also prosecute those crimes. Mr. Vega,
4: that's your one minute. We'll have a moment to discuss in in just a moment. Uh, Mr. Krasner, the same question for you. What is the DA's responsibility in solving the gun violence crisis?
3: So first of all, we have a crisis with shootings. It is with fatal and non-fatal shootings. And the truth is that we have a nearly 85 percent conviction rate with those cases. That is among the very highest in five years. It is comparable to other cities in a very favorable way. It's a very high rate compared to other cities. And we did it without cheating. Part of the reason we've had 20 exonerations is we were dealing with an office when my opponent was there where the truth didn't matter. And so if you could convict someone, you convicted them. It might be the wrong person. They might sit in jail for 20 years or 25 years. That didn't get us anywhere. What we have to do is we have to bring things that work, and we've done that. So part of the way we got to that conviction rate was by streamlining our office, putting our shooting attorneys with our homicide attorneys. Another way that we got there is we put our DAs out in the field at the police divisions working with the police department. Since then, we have come up with a task force between the police department and the DA's office where we look at the gun violence cases of that week to make sure that they're strong, because sometimes they aren't. And most recently, we are actually in the intelligence center working directly with police officers to make things stronger.
4: Mr. Hesner, that that's your one minute. And as we begin our discussion, a follow-up for you. You've mentioned an 85% conviction rate. Does that conviction rate include plea deals?
3: All conviction rates include plea deal. So the answer is yes. Um, you know, the truth is that the vast majority of cases in any, any system are resolved by pleas. But what that signifies often is you have a very strong case, and that the defense does not want to go up against you because they know you have a strong possibility of winning that case. Now, we've done more to try to get at this gun violence problem. And when I talk about intelligence, there is a new exchange of information between the police department, DA's office, that did not exist in the past. It includes the establishment of our own intelligence unit within our office. We're seeing very good results from that.
4: And, Mr. Krasner, I want to let Mr. Vega uh, respond to, to, um, to your answer to the question of the DA's responsibility In solving the gun violence crisis, Mr. Vega?
2: Well, once again, I go to the statistics that he conveniently picks his 80 percent conviction rate on a period of time that is very convenient for him. But I'm talking about the here and now, which is 30, 32 percent conviction rate. We see that in terms of the plea deals, most of the plea deals are time in. So what it is, any defendant was going to plead guilty and get out immediately. He has reduced those charges. With respect to the gun charges, I'll use an example of this year alone. There were 348 gun possession cases, and he withdrew or lost uh, 233 of those cases. He only got verdicts of guilty as to six of them. So those are the real stats of 32%.
4: And Mr. Vega, I want to follow up on something that you mentioned. You mentioned a, a program called Focused Deterrence for our viewers. Um, the DOJ describes that as a spe- it's targeting specific behavior committed by a small number of chronic offenders. How are you going to find those people and uh, reach out
3: to them?
2: Well, with that program, you work with other agencies, the state attorney general's office, the federal government, FBI, DA, and the like, and, and the police department. You get those resources. You investigate that small group of people. Uh, causing the violence, at which point then you bring the mayor, city council, community leaders, and you bring in call-in sessions with those people perpetrating the violence, and you give them a choice. We know what you're doing, and we want you to put down the guns. If not, we will come after you.
4: Mr. Krasner, I'll give you the last word in this discussion.
1: Ten
3: seconds. I'm not sure what my opponent is talking about. We have that. We've had that for two years. Perhaps he's not paying attention. And in fact, it's something that was initiated with the cooperation of the DA's office. It's good to know the details.
1: We must now move on to another important discussion, that
0: of race and public safety. For that, we turn it over to Cherry Gregg. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you so much for being here. The violence in this city is having a disproportionate impact on black communities. Last year, of the 499 homicides and well over 2,000 shootings, more than 85 percent of the victims were black men. And yet those most likely to be arrested and charged for those crimes are also young black men. How do you balance... DEALING WITH SYSTEMIC RACISM AND CRIMINAL JUSTICE WHILE FAIRLY ENFORCING THE LAW. AND THIS QUESTION GOES TO YOU FIRST, MR. KRASNER.
3: THANK YOU FOR THAT QUESTION. Uh, IT'S NOT REALLY THAT HARD. YOU TRY TO DO JUSTICE. THAT IS WHAT THE OATH IS FOR A PROSECUTOR, AN OATH THAT HAS BEEN IGNORED IN THE PAST. BUT YOU TRY TO MAKE SURE THAT YOUR PROSECUTIONS ARE ACCURATE, THAT YOU'RE GOING AFTER PEOPLE WHO ARE GUILTY. YOU MAKE SURE THE DEFENSE GETS ALL THE INFORMATION TO WHICH THEY ARE ENTITLED. THIS IS HOW WE AVOID SITUATIONS LIKE THE ONE THAT WE HAD WITH MY OPPONENT where he took an innocent man and tried to put him back in jail for a second time. And the city ended up paying $10 million after that man was acquitted. Being fair is not that hard. And so that's how we have to get at it. The real answers, of course, lie here uh, primarily in the area of prevention. But within the walls of the DA's office, what we have to do is we have to be diligent, we have to be capable, and that is how we got to a conviction rate That is, in fact, nearly 85 percent for shootings, and shootings are the primary issue that we have when it comes to guns. I understand Mr. Vega wants to tell you other statistics. Sadly, he is confusing uh, cases that came from a prior period with the ones that have come from this period. We can talk about that later.
0: Thank you so much, Mr. Vega. The same question to you.
2: The question is this. When he talks about the focus deterrence program that was in effect two years, when he took office, he fired the head of that, that program, and it was dismantled. It was the mayor who brought that uh, program that they call the GVI, Gun Violence Initiative, by the mayor. He brought that in in July, and then uh, the DA's office finally piggybacked on it in uh, August. Uh, With respect to dealing with the gun violence, once again, you have to put seasoned prosecutors to prosecute those cases, at which point, and then you follow up with proper consequences, where you reduce this violence really by... The Focus Deterrence Program, because there's another part to it. The part to it is having community leaders, business leaders, church community groups, and social workers giving those individuals another choice. Either put down the guns yourself, or we give you this opportunity to get training and get jobs. That's how you address that issue.
0: And is that specifically dealing with the issue of systemic racism?
2: Well, it's community of colors that are suffering the most. with with lack of opportunity, and what we have to do is we have to think outside the box, get the universities involved, businesses involved, to go into the community and give the opportunity.
0: And thank you for that. We're in open discussion now. Mr. Krasner, would you like to
3: respond? Sure. I mean, you know, it's good to tell the truth, and the truth is, that there was no focused deterrence in place when I came in, the opposite of what you just heard. And the truth is, six months into our administration, we were fully in support of a joint grant with the city to try to do what is now called GVI, which is based on the David Kennedy model, which is something of a focused deterrence model. That's been going on for a long time, but my opponent just told you it doesn't exist. And then he said, well, it does exist, and they just piggybacked on it. You're going to see this pattern, and it's an important pattern. When you have a candidate who's running for office who has no regard for the truth either during the campaign or in a courtroom when he's retrying a person he knows to be innocent, that's a problem. The power that goes with this office is significant. And when you're making decisions about charging or not, dropping cases or not, seeking a death penalty or not, you need to know that you have someone in that office you can actually trust to tell you the truth.
0: And Mr. Vega, do you want to take a moment and address the Anthony Wright case? And specifically, you've said that it's not the job of the prosecutor to determine innocence. Do you want to comment on that?
2: Well, I'll comment on that since uh, Mr. Krasner keeps talking about it as opposed to talking to the issues of the number of deaths we've had this year, the year before, and the year before. With respect to Anthony Wright, uh, that case was tried in 1991, not by me. A jury convicted him. When he res- uh, got a new trial... Another D.A. had it for four years. So the appellate unit and supervisors made decisions whether with respect to go to trial or not. The decision was made by the D.A. to move forward. I was called in at the 11th hour to aid or second chair that D.A., at which point I presented evidence and the jury spoke. What speaks volumes with the Innocence Project is this. The Innocence Project brought uh, disciplinary action against that D.A., They did not bring disciplinary action against me because I was not involved in the decision making of those cases. I presented the evidence and I would like to counter in that in my personal uh, experience as a as a D.A., I exonerated George Cortez. That was a case where they a lawyer came up to me, said my client didn't do it. I investigated. He was exonerated and I found the true killer.
0: Thank you for that. And I want to just get back to the point of dealing with the issue of systemic racism, since we only have a few moments left diversion programs, your stance on that, how would you use that to, for people who are arrested and brought into the system to, to use that as an opportunity for intervention? Very quickly, so we have just
1: u- 10 seconds.
3: We have usually expanded diversion and created a committee to make sure that people being picked and selected for it are not picked in a way that is racially disparate, nothing like that has ever happened in the DA's office before.
1: Our next question comes to us from a voter who knows the impact of gun violence firsthand. Let's listen in to Rob Green's question.
5: I recently lost my 16-year-old son to gun violence. I have two other sons as well. I want to know what are you going to do to assure the safety of the kids of Philadelphia?
1: As of April, there have been 19 children killed by gun violence in Philadelphia so far this year. What would you say to parents like Rob Green who see this happening and are terrified, some so terrified they are leaving the city as a result? Mr. Vega, your first one minute uninterrupted.
2: What I say to those parents is we need the community to work with the police department to give information. But once again, I would come back into that focus deterrence program. Those killings, those shootings are being perpetrated by a small group of people. We had to have other agencies. And we see with Mr. Krasner, he has fragmented relationships with other law enforcement agencies, with uh, the attorney general, Josh Shapiro calling his employees uh, uh, Nazi war criminals with the federal government. You see, as recently as a few years ago, the federal government had to step in to do their own initiative to address the gun violence because there are no consequences, and Mr. Krause was not invited because he does not work well or does not want to work at all with those other agencies. We need to work together to address that issue. As I would say once again, Commissioner Outlaw and before Commissioner Ross said... We are doing the job. We're taking guns off in record numbers, but there are no consequences, and that's why we're seeing the murder rate and the shooting rate go up.
1: D.A. Krasner, one minute uninterrupted.
2: Yes, thank you. So, first of all, what you have to do is the work
3: in the office. We have been involved in the GVI program, which is, in fact, the focused deterrence program that's been going on for a very long time. We have brought about five new methods with the police department, which have gotten us to the point where we have this incredibly high rate of conviction for fatal and non-fatal shootings. That is what this gentleman is talking about. I have been at the bedside of children who are shot. I have been at the crime scenes. I have been with families 25 years after the killing and 25 days after the killing. I understand this pain. It is very deep. It is very real. And there is no higher obligation on the part of a prosecutor than to try to stop and prevent the next victimization. But the way we have been doing, it, which is pretending that what happens in a courtroom somehow brings back the loved one you have lost. Pretending that just doing that is going to fix it is completely untrue. We have to go to prevention. We have to move heavily and invest heavily in prevention. No family wants to hear my child is dead and that man got a long sentence. What they want to hear is my child was never shot.
1: As I open it up, For open discussion. Kids are not only dying, but sometimes accused of violent crimes. Just the other day, you charged a 16 year old for the prison shooting and three other killings, those just since Christmas. How do you handle juvenile justice? And do you think your office is doing enough? Where do you draw the line?
3: I think our office has done a fabulous job with juvenile justice. Uh, First of all, we were very lucky to hire Robert Liston B to be one of my first assistants. He is a national authority. Barack Obama chose him to run juvenile justice during Barack Obama's second term and he spent weeks down in D.C. and he came back to Philly where he had been the chief of the juvenile unit for the public defender's office for almost 30 years. We have managed in many ways to bring about deep transformational change within juvenile justice while recognizing that there there are those few cases that do need to be resolved in adult court. Diversion greatly expanded. Out of 2,400 cases, we were able to resolve all but about seven or eight in juvenile court. Kids should be treated as kids. And we were able to get kids out of some placements across the state that were really snake pits. There were over 600 kids in these placements across the, the state when we came in. The number now is a little bit over 100, and they are closer to home, which is the modern trend and is much more effective. But this gets us to the point If you don't want young people to be hurt and to harm other young people, then you have to try to go at the problem.
2: You have to put them in a position where you're preventing that next violent act.
1: Just over a minute left. Mr. Vega, your response.
2: Well, uh, in terms of juveniles committing serious crime, murder, rape, robberies, shootings, they have to be addressed properly, and the juvenile system cannot uh, deal with that fact. In terms of he says he has to get the children uh, at an earlier age, I have what I call an adopt-a-school program. What I would do is I would have my 300 DAs adopt 320 schools being made to go there every other week. In there, they would be the whole school day meeting the children, meeting the parents, meeting the faculty, being a role model for those children. Uh, Once again, I would also bring what I call child court that they have in New York and other cities where the kids, when there's an infraction, whether to suspend them, you have a, a little mini trial with a DA, a defense attorney, a judge, and the, juror, the jurors of their peers would decide what the infraction is and what the penalty would be. So I think it's getting the children young, having them resolve conflict, and have the DAs be engaged that they're a role model and they're visible to those family members so they can reach out to the office.
1: Gentlemen, staying on this topic of violence and guns, we do want to discuss conviction rates. For that, we turn it over to Kristen Johansson. Thank you.
5: Gun arrests have been steadily increasing over the last few years, while the conviction rate has decreased from about 60 percent in the last administration to less than 50 percent. Shootings are skyrocketing, as we've seen. Mr. Krasner, if you're reelected, what will you do to ensure gun offenders are held
3: accountable? So we are already doing that. Obviously, we've come through a period when the courts were basically closed for almost a year. It's unprecedented. I have never seen it in my career of 33 years. probably hasn't happened in 100 years. So it's hard to do anything when the courts are closed. But what is happening now is there is an expedited program to do preliminary hearings for gun cases and gun-related cases. And in the space of seven weeks, the rate at which these cases are being held over, meaning headed for trial past a preliminary hearing, exceeds 92%. You know, we're getting some great results with the cooperation of the courts. It was their idea. We latched onto it. We supported it. We're getting some great results. So that's where we have to go. But we also have to recognize that part of the reason for this multi-year decline in conviction rates for gun possession cases is the quality of the cases has changed. We went from a system of stop and frisk, some of it illegal, to a system of massive stops of cars in certain neighborhoods, mostly black and brown neighborhoods. The truth is some of this is driving while black. And when you stop a car, there may be constitutional issues, but there also may be an issue that there's five people in the car and the gun's in the trunk. That's a weak case.
5: Mr. Vega, same question, but if you're elected, what will you do to ensure gun offenders are held accountable?
2: Well, by prosecuting them uh, aggressively, seriously, and having the DAs with the proper tools and have proper follow-up. I would use the stat that he's saying here and now how successful they are. I would use the stat once again. 348 gun possession cases since January to uh, April 30th. What has he done? He's withdrawn 233 of those cases. Aggravated assaults, a gun, 186 of those arrests that he has approved. Enough evidence, he's withdrawn 157 of those cases. Gunpoint robberies, 136 cases that he has approved. And brought to court. He has dropped 93 of those cases. As we see here, there are no consequences with respect to the gun crime. They are not aggressively pursuing that. Uh, The the office is at a level of incompetency. And when he talks about the police not doing their job, it was the same judges and same police before he took office. In 2018, the only thing that changed was Mr. Krasner and his leadership or lack of leadership.
5: Mr. Vega, thank you. Uh, Mr. Krasner, Mr. Ve- this is open discussion, but Mr. Vega did bring up a point about some of the cases where uh, it seems that some of the uh, defendants had those cases dropped, those felony gun cases dropped. Uh, he mentioned the milan Car case, Josephus Davis. What do you tell families who have their loved ones killed uh, if they may have been alive? What would you tell their families if they think that the suspects may have been in jail?
3: So the case that he is speaking about is one in which my office had four opportunities to argue for high bail. We don't set bail. We argue for it, and then the defense gets to respond. We asked for a million dollars and a quarter, $1.25 million in bails. Judges considered that request, did not give it to us the first time, and then later the defense asked to lower it again. We asked them not to, and the judges reduced that bail to $32,000. The person who killed Mr. Longcar got out on bail by paying $3,200. Now, we have to be honest about this. When my office goes in for high bail, every single time we have an opportunity and we do not set bail, we just make the argument, then we got to look at what really happened and stop just throwing blame around and be honest about what is occurring here. Mr. Vega not only will tell you those kinds of stories, but he will use these statistics that even he has to know are mashed up He's not talking about the same group of cases when he talks about ones that are thrown out and ones that are new. He knows very well that cases that started this year are not ending this year. He's well aware of that. But mm-hmm. he would like to say whatever he can to get through an election cycle without people catching him with this level of deceit and deliberate confusion.
5: And Mr. Vega, feel free to respond. Okay.
2: With respect to the uh, long car case, it dropped several uh, hands. Number one, he had a robbery. He didn't get any bail. He was on the street. While on bail, Uh, on the street. He did a second robbery. Once again he was allowed to remain on the street. Then he did a gunpoint carjacking and then attacked a prison guard. When bail was uh, made uh, we see that the, the attorneys made a bail motion, a bail reduction. I looked at the record. With respect to one of the charges the D.A. said 35 words, was not prepared, did not talk about the person's prior record. The second case that the bail reduction was requested, that DA only said 135 words, and it was reduced. You hear the judges begging to find out a reason to keep him in prison. And once the bail was reduced, the DA's not knowing what to do did not take an immediate appeal to come and please.
1: Thank you. We have to move on. We know the district attorney and police must be able to work together. That is essential on that issue. We want to turn it over to Lauren Make with a question on relationship with law enforcement.
4: Thank you, Jacqueline. Uh, The first part of this question goes to Mr. Vega. You are supported by the police union, and you have worked under administrations during which communities of color have felt targeted by the police. How would you hold police accountable when necessary while ensuring an effective working relationship, Mr. Vega?
2: Uh, Like Mr. Krasner, I'm the only person here who's prosecuted the police and prosecuted them successfully. I've prosecuted a a police officer for a double homicide, before a jury and he was convicted and went to prison. As recently as 2017, I prosecuted a detective for hiding the evidence of his girlfriend's murder. I prosecuted him, he pled guilty and went to prison. So unlike Mr. Krasner who has never prosecuted a case and his office has brought charges on 51 police officers, investigated, brought those charges. Not a single one has been convicted. Of those cases, uh, 17 has been thrown out of court Three have been reduced to misdemeanors. One, he got A.R.D., which was sealed. Uh, So his office is incapable of prosecuting the police officers. I will hold them accountable. How we work with the police is number one, hold them accountable. Second, I want body cams and a dash cam in every police car. Third. I want the community to be engaged with, with, with the police. Tell them, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? Then finally, I want to be part of that police training in the academy.
4: Mr. Vega, that's your one minute. We'll have a moment for discussion. Uh, and Mr. Krasner, a slightly different question for you, but on the same topic. The union that represents police officers in this city is trying to get you fired. Your office has opened dozens of cases against law enforcement. But you cannot do your job to convict offenders Without them, what will you do to improve your relationship and coordination with police officers? Mr.
3: Croster. So so let's talk about the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that the FOP has spent $120,000 on my opponent's campaign, both directly and through something called the Protect Our Police PAC. And they've done it for a reason, which is that the leadership of the FOP, not a lot of the good cops out there, but the leadership of the FOP does not want accountability, we know exactly who my opponent is going to serve. We know exactly who he is serving right now. This is the same, this is the same leader of the FOP who called Black Lives Matter a pack of rabid animals. That's a quote. This is the same leader of the FOP who allows Proud Boys, white supremacists, to come into FOP hall and drink beers with the members within months of an insurrection. That was in many ways led by the Proud Boys. This is the same FOP that endorsed Donald Trump twice without even taking a vote of its members. And you know what? Some of those members are black. They are members of the Guardians, which is the police association of African-American officers, a group that is endorsing me in this campaign.
4: Mr. Krasner, that's your one minute. Mr. Vega, would you like to respond?
2: Uh, Yes. In terms of the FOP, in 2017, Mr. Krasner, and they had supported Donald Trump already, asked for their endorsement. Richard Negrin, who is running for DA, received that uh, support. With respect to vilifying the police, I have to be humble enough to be quiet and work with the police department. You have to, number one, hold him accountable, which I have. Mr. Krasner has it. In fact, I'm sorry, the only felony conviction he has is of a case that he inherited from the prior administration where a police officer tried to kill his son, shot him in the back. The negotiated plea there was 11 and a half to 23 months uh, house arrest. So in other words, think of it. He shot his son, tried to kill him, and got house arrest so he could stay there and watch Netflix.
4: Mr. Vega, uh, a follow-up for you. Um, The DA's office currently has said that some officers cannot testify in cases because of their conduct. What standard would you have for whether a police officer can testify in a criminal case?
2: Well, whether there is what the complaint is, whether it's a question of veracity, have they done something wrong? You give that information to the defense attorney, the court will rule whether that information should be used in cross-examination of that officer. So it would be an open book with respect to what the infractions are and if there was a, a finding of, of uh, guilty in those civil infractions that they did.
4: Mr. Krasner, you can respond. We're still uh, in open
3: I I'm almost running out of ink because I'm writing down all the things that are untrue. I did not seek the endorsement of the FOP, in the last election cycle. In fact, I was very specific. I would not accept it. My opponent is well aware of that, but he just keeps saying it, just like he keeps coming up with these ridiculous statements about, how, about our results with these cases. It's flatly untrue.
4: Did you address the FOP? That I year? did.
3: I did. I addressed the FOP because the head of the FOP invited me to come up there. I said, yes. He then said, I cannot guarantee your safety in a room full of 400 police officers. I left. I went up there anyway, and I said to the members, I am not asking for your endorsement because of your current leadership, but I also don't want them to make up who I am. And I answered their questions, and I answered all of their questions for as long as it took. I have been very clear about this. Not only was I clear, but many people thought it was a risk and that I had no shot of winning as a result. It turns out, simply being who you are and speaking the truth worked out fine.
1: Gentlemen, thank you. Now, to a topic that was an issue four years ago and remains that way today. Cherry Gregg with a question on criminal justice reform.
0: Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Again, uh, Mr. Krasner, you were elected by voters who demanded criminal justice reform, but some ask whether you have gone too far. Your prosecutors no longer seek bail for more than two dozen low level offenses like driving under the influence and sex work. Currently, You're experiencing, we are experiencing a spike in gun crimes. And quite frankly, people do not feel safe if reelected. Will you change your approach to any of your reforms for the
3: sake of keeping
0: drivers of crime off the streets? You have a minute.
3: So, you know, I think we have to always deal in the truth. Our initial bail policy was studied and it was determined by independent experts that it was causing no new crime and that it was not causing people to fail to show up. The truth is that those minor offenses, turnstile jumping, whatever it may be, have no relation to the drivers of gun violence. So, no, we're not going to change that policy. We are always sensitive to whether any of our policies may, be, may have bad edges to them or bad points in them. And that's why we have a data lab in the DA's office that never existed before. This is a grant-funded group, 15 professional data analysts, and a criminologist who I hired on to staff, first criminologist ever in the office, and we study all of our policies to see which ones we think are working or not. Every one of these policies is a 1.0, and then it's a 2.0, and then it's a 3.0 when we find issues. And that is our process, and that's what it should be. It informs the public, but it also helps us to improve things. But we cannot just go back to this zone of generalized fear. Uh, We have to deal with what the truth is. And the truth is that those bail policies are sound and they have nothing to do with the gun violence issues that we face nationally and locally. Thank you
0: so much. Uh, Mr. Vega, you were a career prosecutor during the era of mass incarceration. And those who criticize your candidacy ask whether you will roll back criminal justice reforms that they see valuable. What changes implemented by D.A. Krasner would you keep and which would you roll back and be specific?
2: OK, number one, uh, the ones that I, I would bring back are the uh, Dawn program where we address the issue of women who are sex slaves, drug addicted, put them pre arrest in those programs so they can get the help, get clean and sober and out of that environment. I would bring in the AMP program where we, with uh, a pre uh, uh, alternative misdemeanor program where you put people that are drug addicted with nurses, social workers and put them a straight and narrow and their records are sealed. Uh, in terms of what I would keep is the conviction integrity unit, because uh, I myself, in the example of uh, George Cortez, I uh, exonerated him, an attorney, although I was a line DA, I reviewed that case, found out he didn't do it, I exonerated him, but I didn't stop there. I followed the, the, the lead and found the true perpetrator, and he was brought to justice. I need to, though, expand that unit because it's too small and fill it with experienced attorneys and investigators. That way, those cases could be reviewed much quicker. But I would not stop, as Mr. Krasner does, which is, he says, I exonerate him, and there's another person. He, I would go further and find the true perpetrator to get justice for much. that family member.
0: And that ends this uninterrupted We're into open discussion. Mr. Krasner, would you like to respond?
3: Sure. Once again, we hear information that's not correct. Amp has been expanded, and it exists. So I'm not sure why my opponent is telling you he's going to introduce this thing that we already have. Second, when he talks about this supposed exoneration, what actually happened there is, with no involvement of Mr. Vega, a conviction was reversed by a higher court. His office, when he was there, fought that reversal. After it's reversed, and they're going back for a second trial, it is discovered that one brother rather than the other committed the crime. That's it. It is not the situation that Mr. Vega at any point in his career has said that guilty man or that man who was found guilty and is sitting in jail is actually innocent. That's simply untrue. So, you know, when we hear about this, we hear about the new champion of conviction integrity. This is a man who was in the office for 35 years when it was a cover-up organization, when all 20 of the people we have exonerated were sitting in jail, and all twenty of them had lawyers in his office fighting their exonerations. And Where is this newfound reformer who seems to have no white paper, no Mr. email? Bega-Dee, no, I
2: respond to I this comment. With Mr. Cortez, he received the life sentence. That attorney came to me because he trusted me, saying, "Would you review that?" And I exonerated him. Uh, so that is what I would say as to Mr. Cortez. He knows that. And with respect to the issue of the FOP, I'll bring you back because I was there when he brought several former prosecutors were now defense attorneys advocating on his behalf to get the endorsement of the FOP.
0: And I have to ask you this follow up question, Mr. Krasner. You've been criticized by people on both sides of the cash bail issue. um, And folks have said that the DAs that you put up to seek bail are inexperienced. Would you change out the DAs you use to seek bail and use a more nuanced approach so that people who are violent and who do commit violence if let back on the street would be held?
3: For number one, you just heard Mr. Vega once again lie. And say that I sought this endorsement. This is what he does. It's a Trumpian tactic. You just keep saying things that are untrue, that you know to be untrue, over and over. It is not just what he's doing during this campaign. It's also what he did when he tried the Anthony Wright case. And he told the jury that a man he knew for a fact was innocent and based on DNA. That President, that person have was you guilty. Address this problem with the bail issue, with this question about the bail. We have the most talented attorneys I have ever seen in that office. I went all around the country, including to six all six HBCU law schools, to recruit them. They are far better than the caliber of the attorneys who were there before.
1: We must move on to our next focus, which is victims and their rights. For that, Kristen Johansson. Thank you so much,
5: Mr. Krasner. This first question is for you. You've been criticized by victims and advocates for offering too many plea deals, in homicide cases specifically, without considering input from families of victims. What do you say to the critics who claim that you put the defendant's rights before victims' rights?
3: You know, one of the things that happens when people have suffered a terrible trauma, and I myself was actually the victim of a violent assault. Certainly nothing as terrible as having a homicide in my family, but a violent assault. One of the things that happens is sometimes their trauma is so great that they have to express it in different ways. And it is key that prosecutors don't use that for political purposes. We are giving offers in homicide cases in almost exactly the same way that they were given before. But we are not going to trot out all of the victims and the families who are happy with what we did because we are not going to use them. And so sometimes people who do not care for them the way we do care for them are using victims who are dissatisfied, which of course happens, and they're using them for political purposes. It's terrible. It shouldn't happen. There is no higher priority in our office than to try to eliminate the next victimization. But that means going towards the future. That means going towards prevention That means caring about everybody in the city of Philadelphia and making sure that what we need for prevention actually happens.
5: Okay, thank you. And a slightly different question for you, Mr. Vega. There are tough decisions in the district attorney's office. If you're elected, how much say will victims' families have in determining the seriousness of charges you will bring and whether you would offer a plea deal to prevent trauma of a trial?
2: Well, the answer he gave, which was a non-answer, is this. He has not notified the family. I'll use the example of the Asian man, Mike Pyong, who was shot with an AK-47. We saw it on video. A uh, deal was made. He was never notified. In fact, the U.S. attorney had to step in to an appropriate uh, a sentence in that case. He has not notified families, as he said here. He's talking about trauma. But I, as a DA, have had those uncomfortable conversations with family members of saying, this is what we're gonna do. And you talk to that family. He has not had them there that they know what's gonna happen. He's not that had them there to address the court. They have the right under the victim bill of rights is to address the court and see how they feel and how that crime has affected them. So I will open have an open door policy, speak to the family members and make them aware of every step of the, the, the case and come to every important listing, which Mr. Kras has not done. It's been secret. And it's like a store chamber that they don't tell the victims anything anymore.
5: Okay, and thank you for that. And we will have an open discussion. But how would you determine whether or not a plea deal would be able to be offered? How would you determine that?
2: Well, well, the DA's office does determine that. We have to weigh the facts, the evidence, and then you have that conversation with the family. I'll use an example of a murder. A family might be full of rage and they want a first degree life imprisonment. You have to sit down and say, listen, these are the facts. This is a law. And it's not that. Yeah, and you talk to them again and again, and at at which point they trust you because you're having that conversation and you make that offer. You can't have the family say this is the offer, but they need to be aware of why we're doing it and, and give them that respect because they have lost a loved one. the issue of bail, I would explain this. When you say lack of experience, I'll use an example of last week. A friend of mine called me. His client has been working at AT AT&T for 20 years. He's a supervisor. He had a legal gun. He left it in his car and was arrested for violation of the Firearms Act. The DA's office asked for a million dollars $1. That is not showing what common sense is. He has across the board on all cases now. Regardless if you have no record, asking for a million dollars and then putting it on the judge. You have to own it and take responsibility.
3: Would you like to respond? Yes. I mean, once again, we have the usual lasagna of lies. He basically lays out one untruth and then he moves on to the next and lays it out and moves on to the next because it's a tactic that's worked for him. You just keep saying untrue things one after another and you hope that nobody can catch up with you. They run out of ink when they're writing down the thing that that he is saying. The truth is that our office brought more than $2 million dollars to measures for victims that never were there before. We have this CARES program which provides intensive services for the families of homicide victims in the first 45 days. It has been funded twice by grants. No one did that before. We have tightened up the reporting requirements, meaning the communications requirements, with victims that were frankly loose before. We went to the state victims advocate and said, how can we get more databases so we can find victims and find survivors? Because often, just like the defendants, they're broke. They don't necessarily have the same phone number now as they had before. They may have changed the emails. They may have changed addresses. And we obtained those databases so we could do a better job of locating them and communicating with them. To really? say we have not if met we- with them is flatly false. He does not have any basis for saying that, and he's just going to keep doing this. You're going to see this all night.
1: Okay, thank you very much, our next question is on immigrant's rights and comes to us from a voter. Marcus Lamelli is a South Philadelphia resident. He's also a Mexican immigrant who became a US citizen in 2017. Let's listen into his question.
3: If elected, how will you pick and choose which immigration laws to enforce and which ones you can exercise prosecutorial discretion considering the ongoing changes in this area of the law?
1: Mr. Vega, you may respond first, 1 minute uninterrupted.
2: The question he's asking is really a federal question. I don't deal with the issue of immigration. What I would say is in the course of my career, if you're an undocumented person and you're a victim of a crime, we have never called the federal government on that individual. With respect to someone who is an undocumented person who has committed a crime, selling drug, selling drugs, raping a child, committing murder... They're put in the data system at which point the federal government finds those individuals. And after they are prosecuted uh, by the D.A.'s office, then the federal government comes in. And if it fits under their criteria of deportation, then it's done and they are removed. But in terms of uh, undocumented people that are victims, our office will never give that information to, to the federal government. But with respect to defendants committing violent crimes, The federal government does have access to that information, and they will act accordingly.
1: D.A. Krasner.
3: So actually, in the prior years, when my opponent was there, his office did that routinely. Whenever they felt like it, they would call ICE, they would call immigration, and they would try to use it as a tactic in those cases. I eliminated that, and we set up the first ever unit to make sure we could protect victims who were undocumented, witnesses we needed who were undocumented, but also in the appropriate case a defendant, whose criminal violation was minor, but who faced unreasonably large consequences from immigration for 10 years of the 35 he's talking about there was a contract in which the city would immediately expedite information to ICE so that if someone was arrested ICE could come in and start immigration proceedings Mr. Vega never objected to any of that I ended it I ended it by voting along with the mayor And our two votes were sufficient to break a 10-year-long contract. So it's nice to hear these words once again, these fluffy words. But the reality is we need to look at actions, not just words, to see the character of the people who are asking to be your next
2: prosecutor. Can I respond to that just quickly? Uh, In terms of his dealing with undocumented people who have committed crime, I'll use the example of a Haitian who beat his girlfriend and strangled her. Uh, She survived, and he reduced that charge from aggravated assault by strangulation to disorderly conduct therefore unleashing him on another poor, unsuspecting woman. So that's how he has dealt with immigration issues with violent predators.
1: So what is your relationship with ICE going to be if elected?
2: Well, the relationship is this. And and when he talks about the fluff and the lasagna, uh, I'm going to tell you this. I treat people with respect, even here if I disagree with someone. My relationship with ICE is I never had one. The fact is, in my 35 years, never once did I call any federal agency to remove a victim of crime. In my career, in 35 years, even when a defendant was convicted of murder, I didn't have to call. The federal government came in. So what I would say is this. I will stay in my lane, protect people who need protecting, but those people who are unleashed on my community, they are going to be prosecuted. And if the federal government comes in and lends a helping hand, then so be it. But remember, I'm here to protect people. We've gotten to the point here now that you can't even go to Macy's on a Sunday morning without getting raped. That's what happened in this city. So we could be all nice, but we want a prosecutor, not a social worker here.
4: Mr. Vega, to, be, to clarify and to be clear, if ICE asks for the information, would you give it to them?
2: If it's the information as to a defendant, yes, but they don't have to ask for that. That is in the computer banks of the police department already.
4: But if they want you to give it to them, you will.
2: Yeah, I have to. I have to follow the law.
1: Dia Krasner.
3: This is a sanctuary city. The mayor declared that. There are certain things that go with that. The feds are perfectly good at getting all the information that they need to get. There are cases where it is appropriate for someone to be deported because the crime is serious, and that's fine. But it is not our job to make it hard for witnesses who may be undocumented to come forward. Let's not kid ourselves. When you have any group of people who are marginalized, whether they are undocumented immigrants are sex workers, and you put them in a position where they cannot go to law enforcement, then there will be more preying upon them. When you have witnesses you need, and maybe a witness who is there to protect a U.S. citizen who's a victim, you have to have a court system where they know that they can talk to prosecutors and police officers and go to court without fear that they're going to be deported. We do it, want to turn our focus. On
2: that point, I would say this. I'm doing a distinction, someone committing a violent crime, a rape, abuse of a child, If you're a victim of crime, I'm not dealing with the federal government, but in terms of a predator preying on children, I would. We
1: do have to move on to the focus of
2: the organization
1: of the office. Kristen Johansson.
5: Yes. So this is for both. Uh, If you are elected or reelected, your job is to lead one of the largest law firms in the region. And since... Basically, Mr. Krasner, I'm sorry. So Since you became district attorney, there has been a huge amount of turnover. Some have been fired. Some have left. Defense attorneys have said cases are being handled with inexperienced prosecutors unfamiliar with the Philadelphia courts. How can you attract, train and retain a diverse and qualified group of prosecutors who can handle the office's caseload?
3: So your your information, I say this respectfully, is not entirely correct. Before I got there, there was an amount of turnover that was ordinarily almost 50 or more attorneys a year. That's just been going on in Philly for a very long time. We've had a very similar level of, of turnover. But what have we done? We have actually made recruiting our number one priority in the office. And what that meant was this. We have gone to 30 law schools around the country, the Philly schools, all six HBCU law schools in the United States, and all 20 top ranked law schools in the United States. I went myself. I took Mr. Liston B with me and we went for a reason. We had to explain to incredibly bright and talented young lawyers why they might want to be a progressive prosecutor because they didn't want to be a traditional prosecutor. They understand that the generation that, uh, that was around Mr. Vega when he was in that office were all about maximum charging, maximum incarceration. Mr. Vega, in his announcement, said that mass incarceration was a buzzword. It's not a buzzword to young law students. And those who are really idealistic are coming to us specifically because we recruit that
2: heavily. We
5: have to ask Mr. Vega now, how can you attract, train, and retain a diverse and qualified group of prosecutors who can handle the caseload? First
2: of all, with respect to uh, his personally handpicking the best of the best, I believe out of 54, 64 people that he handpicked, 22 failed the bar and he kept them at DA salaries. When they took to par again, seven failed again. What I would do in attracting people, I would make the office more diverse. As we see from certain reports and uh, a report in the Enquirer from uh, Mr. Adam Gere, uh, out of 320 DAs, only 14% are African American. That means there are only 45 DAs there that are black. In terms of those making over $80,000, it's 114. Only 12 are black. We need to have people of color Uh, who look like our community and be there at the front lines. And I'm talking about not support staff, I'm talking about lawyers, lawyers who are making the decisions of whether to prosecute of what sentence to give. And uh, so what I would do is approach those and to keep those black DAs in the office and recruit them is pay them the same amount that a white DA is going to get.
5: Thank you, Mr. Vega. Mr. Krasner, I do know that there have been about a dozen homicide prosecutors that have either resigned or left for another position. You can respond to Mr. Vega, but also can you address that?
3: First of all, he is lying about the bar failure rate. That is absurd. We have a higher bar success rate than the rest of the state. He's making up numbers one more time. Second, our increase in diversity has been 100 percent or more during our period there. When I got there, there were 35 black attorneys after his 35 years in the office. There are now 55. I've just hired a class. And by September, we are going to have 70. That is a 100% increase in our black attorneys. Our, our people of color have increased by also 100%. And let, let me just give you this stat so people understand how untruthful he's being to you. When I got to that office, there were 72 black employees. There are 170 now. That is a 137% increase. And yet he puts out flyers, and he goes from ward meeting to ward meeting, and he flat out lies and says that we're not hiring for diversity. I, I
5: do want to ask this question, though, because the training uh, in the courtroom, I've heard from several defense attorneys that say that these prosecutors are showing up, that they are unprepared when they show up to court sometimes. Uh, some of the prosecutors, we understand, that may be moving up to homicide have only tried a handful of trials, uh, a jury trials themselves. So do you have a plan for how you plan to train these prosecutors They're going to be handling large cases? Well, once
3: again, I don't know whether all those defense attorneys work for the FOP because, frankly, a whole lot of them do. I'm not sure who your sources are. I'm getting the exact opposite report. I'm getting a report that they are very well trained, that they're going into court very well prepared, and that's how you get to the point or you're doing gun preliminary hearings, gun violence preliminary hearings, and you have a rate that's higher than 90% for them being held over. I so, you know, let us deal, let us deal, please, in the realm of what is actual, not just what is rumor. get to very respond? Quick,
5: very quickly.
2: Uh, very quickly. Ten seconds. Uh, as to their experience, 533 cases out uh, of 785 are lost. Uh, the numbers don't lie. Uh, and, and they're not trained. I would ask this one question. We have
1: to move on. As we are nearing the end of this debate, we do want to focus on the future. The pandemic has caused the criminal justice system to slow, if not grind to a halt in some ways, and the backlog of cases continues to grow by the day with victims waiting to see justice and defendants awaiting their day in court. There is a feeling among the public that those who commit these crimes will never pay for what they did. How do you plan to deal with the backlog of cases to ensure that justice is swiftly And fairly served. For this portion, just a one minute response from each of you. We begin with D.A. Krasner.
3: Yes, thank you. It's a big challenge because our caseload is now twice as big as it was before. But one of the things we were very successful in doing is we got the courts to work with us and prioritize some of the most serious cases. We actually resolved more shooting and homicide cases during certain periods of the pandemic than before. Yes, the the misdemeanors were basically shut down and they were going nowhere. But I can tell you right now we're having good progress once again with the courts. There is a courtroom open that is actually up in the jails. Cases are able to move there because it's very hard to move inmates into the criminal justice center downtown. We are seeing significant progress with a number of courtrooms within the criminal justice center. But we have to be honest about this. You cannot blame the courts and you cannot blame the prosecutors or the police for the fact that the pandemic shut down so many things. We simply cannot go into a courtroom that is closed During a pandemic, we simply cannot put people in a jury box who all have to sit next to each other when there is no vaccine. So things are going to get better, and I trust they're going to get a whole lot better, but we've all been through a a difficult patch.
1: Mr. Vega, how would you handle the backlog?
2: we handle the backlog because he hasn't given a solution. Is this, you have to get creative. What I would do first is bring uh, preliminary hearings back to the police district. Every police district has a courtroom. So I would put every case that's a, a preliminary hearing in the districts, with the exception of a drug case or, or a, a homicide or a rape. Then I would uh, talk to court administration and the judges and bring in a three shift system, almost like they did in New York, which is I'd have a morning shift of the courts being open from 8 to 12, sanitize the building, and then from 1 to 5. Bring in those cases and then have night court, which would be from 7 to 11, which rather than inconvenience the citizens, it would be police cases, where it's drug cases or gun cases, where it would be police personnel uh, testifying. That way, everyone has their day in court, defendants have their day in court, it'll be working for several months, all hands on deck, but a system of the districts, three shifts, and we could get uh, rid of that backlog within four to six months.
1: We do want to move on to our lightning round segment of the debate. It's a section of questions with your answers just limited to 15 seconds. We'll begin with D.A. Krasner first. What is the one thing you would have done differently during your term?
3: I think probably the one thing I would have done differently is that I would have done more retail politics. I would have spent more time, you know, calling members of council to say, how are your kids doing? How's your cat? Um, I was used to running a law firm, and so I ran it that way, but that's changing now.
1: Mr. Vega, once the pandemic is over, would you charge people for shoplifting and similar small offenses?
2: Absolutely. What we see is businesses are leaving. Uh, It's ludicrous that for someone to be charged with a crime, uh, you have to steal worth $500 worth of product. I came from a family that we owned a grocery store at Bodega, and if you stole our property, uh, we would be devastated. So we see places like Five and Below, uh, a Dollar Store, are being decimated with, with those retail thefts.
1: D.A. Krasner, why do you deserve to be elected again?
3: Because we have kept our promises, because our record is remarkable. And be, even though we have been through a very difficult time and we're not out of that time, we have to go towards a bright future as opposed to a, frankly, very, very troubling